Well, um, I've said to one of my small groups that we're kind of following along with this series, and, uh, and, and I said, you guys, I really want you to memorize it, so those of you guys that are here, I'm going to ask you to stand. No. Um, I've been saying that to you as a congregation, so I thought maybe we could do it from memory, and you know, we usually read it. No, I'm just kidding. We have been talking about living without fear and this whole idea that God hems us in. And if you look at that psalm, I love it. And it just kind of came clear to me when I was reflecting and studying on it this summer, preparing for this. And, and this whole idea that God hems us in with his presence. His love is all about us. You get this idea that he is the shepherd who is above you. He, he provides for you. You should not want. You have this idea that he's before you. That he leads and he guides you into these paths. And then you have this idea that in the valley, in the deepest, darkest place, he's beside you. So as he's above you, he's before you, he's beside you. And then today we're going to be looking at the fact that he kind of stands beneath us, supporting us in the presence of our enemies. And it ends with this idea, surely goodness and mercy will what? Follow you. I mean, he's got you covered. He loves you that much. So I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to say this this psalm together and read it. And um, wasn't it fun to watch the interaction between the two? (laughs) Kind of like, get with it. Let's read. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thanks. You may be seated. I'm excited to have Peter Kapsner share this message with me today. This is kind of a new, I haven't really done this kind of type of, of message before, and even a little bit scarier having Peter do this with me. It's mutual, yeah. It's yeah, mutual, you're feeling it's mutual, mutual on that? Yeah, no, yeah, terrified. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I usually have Peter speak when I'm not here, and I, I often give him the really hard topic, and I just get out of town. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right? No, that's, that that's been entirely my experience, yes. <laughs> so I thought maybe we would do something together, and you could get back at me. Um, I don't know if that's going to work that way. But, um, you know, as we came out of this, uh, this whole last year, I was preparing, in, in, in especially this summer, preparing this message. Um, on a number of occasions, I was kind of thinking about it, and, and then I, I went ahead and, and I, I began to journal because I thought of the simplicity of this and, and, the, and the power of this, which we call a psalm, but it was really kind of a poem. It's a song they would sing. These would be songs that you could sing to remember the presence of God. And I just wrote in my journal, what amazes me is, is this is that this is not some 21st century modern writing these words. This is a guy who lived 1,000 years before the time of Jesus, a man who reflected on his life, his boyhood days of watching over his father's flock. He looks at his life and the flock of this small nation, which he is now the king shepherding, called Israel, and he sees God, the almighty God of the universe, as his, his people and our personal shepherd king. And David pens the words from his heart, expressing how safely he is kept by God, the shepherd. And he didn't write this, hoping to write a tune that would hit the top 40 playlist, 
or be on the New York Times bestseller, he had no idea when he wrote this that these about 115 words would be read for the next 3,000 years at funerals, by bedsides, or to calm troubled hearts. Yeah. I just... Yeah, that I know, was you know, pretty powerful. You, you texted me probably, I'm guessing, three or four months ago and said, you're going to get into this series and the Lord is my shepherd. And there's something in my heart that really rose to that. Um, I, I'm always compelled by what historians might say about a given generation a hundred years after that generation has sort of lived out its life. What would mark that generation? What would we kind of, if, if we had a couple of paragraphs in a history book to say something about them, what might we say? And I don't know the answer to that question entirely, but my guess is among the things that might mark this generation, this season, this time, uh, would be anxiety. Um, I, I know I've been teaching for the better part of 15 or 20 years, and uh, I think it was about 10 years ago that I noticed this sort of unusual dynamic begin to happen in my classrooms at both Bethel and Northwestern. And that was that as a professor, historically I might have one or two students that were really struggling with anxiety on some level, and I would try to make accommodations for them in the classroom to help get their way through to the end. And it was about 10 years ago that all of a sudden there was this incredible rise and anxiety, and I began to study some of those things. It was consistent with when Facebook began to run roughshod in our culture. It was consistent with the phone and the media. And of course, I think if you read some of the studies now that are backwards looking, you see that one of the most dramatic impacts of the technological age is the increase in anxiety. To the point where when I ask my students now, uh, why don't you raise your hand if you yourself or you know somebody who is struggling consistently, if not almost 24-7 with anxiety, instead of one or two hands being raised in the air, it's the entire classroom. Um, and, uh, and whether it's them or needing accommodation. And so to your point, I think, Kevin, when you said this about the 23rd Psalm and the Lord is our shepherd... I don't know of a, of a more important word because when a generation is living a certain kind of way, the word of God often comes to that yep, generation. Yep. And, and I can't imagine a more important word than to remember, instead of letting our phone shepherd us or the news sources shepherd us, to really have the voice of the shepherd shepherd us mm-hmm. uh, moving forward. Especially the word of God in that sense in which he's kind of referring to. And I think is, um, as I look at this, I, it, people may not realize, but in June I was actually thinking of going a different direction this fall. And I began to read and I began to talk with different people and I just, it hit me. The loneliness, the anxiety, the fear, and I just felt like we need to have something that we keep in our head and our mind and that Psalm 23rd was one that I I felt the Lord leading. Last week we were looking at it and you can see when you go through difficult times, you you hit the deep dark valley. We were in the valley with David and we were talking about those times when you kind of, sometimes you see the shadow coming of the valley, you know, you could see it. Sometimes you turn the corner and it's there. And we, we spoke last week, I had the opportunity to speak with Sean Matthews. Who, who entered into one of those dark valleys one morning as she, it was sunny and, and by the time of the afternoon it was deep and dark and her son Wyatt and it was so, I just am so grateful for Sean and for her words, um, because about a year ago, for some of you who may not know, uh, her husband, uh, Bill was a police officer with Wyzetta, um, police department and in the line of duty was, uh, lost his life. And so what was that like? And, and one year later, amazing, she shared with us some of those things. Yeah, she did. I mean, Hallie and I sat just, um, 
really moved by what Sean had to say last week. We know her as Sean Badalson. She was a friend of ours, a good friend of ours in high school. And we haven't stayed in touch over all these years, but to see the journey that she was on and describe it last week, I think, I don't know how you were experiencing it, but I know the couple of things that I really sort of walked away with and have sat with in this last week was the idea that she's living breath by breath. Mm-hmm. That it's uh, and in the fear that she has for Wyatt when he's fifteen, and and what she all has to do now to make sure Wyatt's going to be okay at fifteen. Like, oh my gosh, does that speak to my life? All of the things that I'm trying to do now because I'm worried that I'm not going to have the resources that I'm going to need eight years from now, because that's eight years from now for her with Wyatt. So what do I have to do today? And, and there is this invitation in that moment to say she has the resources that she needs for today. And in eight years, she'll have the resources she needs for that day. And Hallie leaned over and whispered in my ear, and she said, you know, Peter, it's really the manna in the wilderness, isn't it? It's what the Israelites had to learn as they followed out their shepherd God, is that they couldn't store the manna for the next day. They didn't have a pantry to put it in after a Costco run, right? I mean, they, they all they had was the manna for that day. If they tried to store it, they'd wake up the next morning and it was filled with maggots. And they were reliant then again on that day for the manna of that day. And I just thought, I don't know how to live that way for sure. I, I don't know what it means to go breath by breath in those kinds of ways. I, I was mindful of that great theologian, Winnie the Pooh. Um, and that movie that came out recently, it really struck me. He said, you know, yesterday when it was tomorrow, it was way too much day for me. And I, I just live in the breath by breath moment. Yeah, well, I, that, I had the opportunity to meet a couple times with Sean over the years, but especially in preparing for that. And I was struck by the, the breath by breath, primarily that it is in crisis that we sign it kind of come to that place you go breath by breath. But in reality, we're to live that way. Yeah. And, and that's the call, is to recognize that in the next moment, as you walk, God will resource you with what's needed um, in that next moment. Uh, David makes an interesting transition. He moves from the valley and quickly moves. And one of the things I had mentioned last week is it, it, the whole psalm, is if you look at it, it moves in a direction to the center where it says, for you are with me. It's all about the presence of God. He hems you in. It begins with the Lord, ends with the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd, the house of the Lord center of it in the Hebrew specifically for you are with me. It points to that. And, and then also he changes direction. And here's another thing. In the first few verses of it, he talks about he, 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 a kind of you know, third person pronoun. Now he changes at this point to you, for you are with me. And he turns to this next verse and he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And he makes this quick transition. Uh, many commentators say, there's a number who believe um, this isn't necessarily now David talking about the flock as much as he's talking about being a king under a greater king. And, and he's switching metaphors at this point as they're coming to the table. And the picture is something quite common in David's day, in his time. He would, he would know this because he was a king probably at this point when he was writing this, thinking of his own people, thinking of God's care, probably some crisis going on so that he was in this process saying, you taught me this when I was a kid, you're going to teach me again now as I go through this. But in those days, what would happen is you would be hosted by a superior king, a lesser king. We'd have these treaties called the suzerain-vassal treaty. And in that day, the suzerain, larger, greater king, would host a lesser king and make a treaty with him and say, I will provide for you, protect you. And so you get this kind of, you've prepared a table for me. You, the great king, almighty king of the whole universe, has called me this little shepherd king in this little place, in this little land called Israel, to come to your table 
and to feast with you. And these ancient treaties are, are, are known throughout history. In fact, there's, in, in extant literature, there, there's a number of these treaties that are found. One was found, uh, the earliest, is about 2,500 years before Christ. It's called the Steel of the Vultures. And it's not S-T-E-A-L, but S-T-E-L-E, which is the idea that they, these big slabs of rock where they would write and inscribe the treaty on it. And, and it was a treaty at that time that was made between the rulers of the city-state Lagash, which was a larger one, and the nearby city-state Uma. And, and, and you see these throughout history. Yeah, you sent me a, a sort of a series of pictures then from the biblical text this week in which you see this sort of powerful king inviting the lesser or the vassal to the table. And one of those passages was out of Exodus 24 that you sent, which the context of this passage is the Israelites are just coming out of slavery. And they go up to the mountain in order to enter into this covenant or this treaty with God. And I think we'll have it up on the screen here, some of the verses that are relevant uh, in terms of, you know, Moses, Aaron, the 70 elders uh, went up to Israel. You know, Kevin, can you see that, by the way? You know, I'm getting a little older. And I, I'm realizing, I can you know, see it perfectly. Yeah, as, can you really? <laughs> I did have LASIK surgery. Oh, you so did. Just, you yeah. might want to turn and look because, at this one. There's there a much bigger okay. font size up there. Because, you know, Hallie and I are finding ourselves with our phones like yeah, out here, yeah, you know, yeah, now. Yeah. She's like way out here. But, I was your okay. age once. Anyway. Um, um, Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. <laughs> and under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. And we can stop there. There's more passages. Just leave it up on the screen for a minute. But um, it's interesting that uh, there's this pavement made of sapphire. And Hallie and I had a chance to study with an Old Testament scholar at one point, and Hallie had all these notes that she was walking me through again yesterday, reminding me that when you see that word pavement in the Hebrew, it literally can be rendered like bricks or a series of bricks. And it, when you read the biblical text, the authors are almost always referring back and forth, like what's happened before matters for the next series of texts that are there. There's an interconnected whole mm-hmm. to the biblical text. And so the question is, have we seen this word bricks show up in the past? And if we have, what might it say about this king God that is inviting these people into the treaty and the covenant? Why sapphire? Well, there are two other times that the word bricks has shown up in the Old Testament prior to this passage. The first time has to do with the Tower of Babylon and the bricks of which that was made. Uh, the second time is when the Israelites are in captivity to Egypt and they're making bricks of mud for the Pharaoh. And what's interesting in then this reference to God in which all things are under his feet, so you have this very powerful God showing up and it says under his feet as he's in the sky, that image of power and authority. These bricks are sapphire. They're these bricks of beauty and wonder and delight uh, of sort of the power representation of just the delight of God. As opposed to the bricks of Babylon, which were about a bunch of human beings trying to make a name for themselves, or the bricks of Pharaoh, which is human beings working in the slavery of Egypt to sin, uh, God is saying, I am your king, but come make bricks of sapphire with me. Uh, come make bricks of beauty and delight. I will, there's a covenant I want you to enter with me to not make bricks about a name for yourself or bricks around uh, slavery to sin. Come make bricks with me. So the rest of the passage has... All of this language that I think we're familiar with then reference to the communion table. Real quickly, it's really yeah, cool. Please. I never thought of this, so I'm going to just interrupt. But yeah. the idea that other kings, this other king was making them fulfill their kind of earthly kingdom and, and, and God is saying, come build my kingdom. Yeah. 
almost that sense. And, and that is the, that's yeah. the message, right? I mm-hmm. mean, we, we are not just these passive recipients that right. sit at the table with the king uh, and just enjoy the king. We work with that king. And so we see, if I'm not going to read through the entire thing, but you can see some of the reference points here that set up an altar. There are the 12 tribes, the young Israelite men. They offered burnt offering and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Next slide. And Moses took half the blood and put it in the bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. It's it's one of those moments in which the people are purified by the sacrificial blood in order to enter into the brick-making work of God. Um, One more passage. And they're kind of, in that sense, too, they're brought up to the mountain where it is being hosted by God at his table. And so God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and they drank. And here we are again with a really consistent theme in the text about eating and drinking together with God. I think that sort of is a a kind of covenant thing, which we find there's possibly a future meal. I I would think, I mean, there's this stuff, you know, right here in front of us. I, (laughs) um, when Jesus is sitting at that table, uh, he's not making up something new relative with his disciples when he says, go ahead and eat of this bread and drink of this cup. This is a long-standing theme within the biblical text to join me through the bread and the wine to keep making the kingdom come in your current time and space. And so we go back to this language about what is the call to this generation. So you have these covenants that are made between kings and the suzerain, great kings, powerful kings with these vassal treaty kings, and you see it with his people all the way through, even to the time of Jesus, what he makes with us, when we monthly uh, not just remember, but reenact in a sense the fact that this is a God who is made a, a commitment, a vow to us. What's interesting as you read about this, he's inviting this lowly earthly king, David, as the shepherd to come to his table. If he adds a thought... That is important. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And I love this idea. It's this idea, again, of a treaty of this powerful king bringing in these lesser kings. Uh, And you have to understand in that day, it helped me understand when I've traveled overseas, specifically even in Africa, I went to there. And you will find that they'll name people princes or kings, that kind of idea, over small clans. I mean, I went to one area where there was a Maasai tribe of about 40, a clan, and they have this circle. And there was a prince or king kind of of that clan. And there's another clan. And they would kind of take each other's stuff. They would go and raid each other. There was land grab for better pasture for their cattle, that kind of stuff. You get this picture here of this lowly king being invited to the table of this great king, and the other kings are looking at him going, "Uh uh-oh, we're in trouble now, because we can't just grab his stuff anymore. There is a huge, powerful king who is going to protect him and provide for him, so that is, the host sets a table, this great king, in the presence, as these enemies look on and say, "Uh uh-oh, they're making a treaty This guy's making a treaty with someone who's about our size in order to protect him. I don't know if you um, have ideas or illustrations or anything around that, if you think about that. Yeah, you know, I don't know a specific illustration. I just know, again, getting back to that theme about I'm I'm so concerned about the future. Uh, the, The world often feels really chaotic. You know, I mean, just think about the events of the last couple of weeks in our country and just the just the sheer chaos and, and the things that maybe we thought we could lean into in this life. Maybe it's our country, maybe it's our systems, but we see all of these things beginning to sort of disintegrate a bit like they do throughout history. There is no kingdom in this world that has ever stood forever. They all begin to disintegrate in the midst of the kingdom 
of heaven. I don't know what that means for our future here uh, in America, but certainly I, there's a sense in which it's like, is there a king of a different? Is there a king of a different kingdom? Is there a king of an eternal? Kingdom. I don't know. When I think about it too, I think of this um, sometimes. When I remember when I was younger, my brother was two years older. He was like a lot bigger than me. And <laughs> he still is, Kevin. He still is yeah. bigger than me. Yeah, yeah. Right. That's true. Um, and and we would be kind of fighting, and I would be getting the bad side of it. And my mom would kind of. I always felt like you know would kind of side with me and put him over there. And I mean, it's not the right thing to do. I don't think David was doing this, but it's kind of like, ha ha. I know she's going to protect me. You know what I mean? It, it's that kind of feeling of I've got power on my side. Yeah. Someone to care for me. Well, and I think we need to know that. I, yeah, I was thinking back to Genesis 3, in which the male and the female decide to take matters in their own hands, eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And as soon as they do that, the biblical text says that their eyes are opened and they realize they are naked. And that, again, that word naked in the text is not an idea of sort of a physical nakedness, and they're like all concerned about that. The word literally naked there means that they realize that they are susceptible to the chaos around them, and they are no longer tethered to God. And in all of that nakedness and all of that susceptibility to the chaos, there's this invitation in the 23rd Psalm to remember there really is the king of a kingdom. There's a table at, at with a shepherd with whom we can eat that's invited us to, in the midst of whatever chaos is going on in this world, our call is still the same. Keep building my bricks with me, the bricks of delight and beauty and wonder in the midst. Shine a light in a world that, uh, as Paul would say, is an increasingly crooked or perverse generation. He was using those words 2,000 years ago. Nothing changes. There's one king in one kingdom. Right. So as they go on, they, he, he begins to talk about being anointed with oil. It says, you anoint my head with oil. And what's interesting is you read uh, the Hebrew, the original language, it talks about this being the first time a perfect verb is being used. And I'll explain that in a moment in the sense of just not just a past tense or a present tense, but it's perfect, which you could use the word already in there. You already anointed my head with oil. Or as Leupold, who is a commentator on this psalm, says, you have already indicated your feeling toward me by anointing my head with oil. Catch that? That's kind of what is being said in that word in in Hebrew. You already indicated your feeling toward me by anointing my head with oil. Another way to understand this is to think of a situation where you might go somewhere and you don't come into the home and they they fail to anoint your head with oil. And if you just go into scripture, you'll see in in Luke chapter 7, around 36 through 50, is a story of a sinful woman who comes into a home of a Pharisee where Jesus is being hosted And she comes in, she's so full of gratefulness, she throws herself at his feet, anoints his feet with oil, and kind of dries them and and washes them with her hair. And everyone there is offended, first of all, because they know this, you know, being a sinful woman, this woman had a reputation in town. Most commentators believe it could be a a woman of ill repute, a a prostitute who had come in, who somehow got in some way, Jesus um, brought healing or did something in her life. And, And then they're all ticked off because he is allowing her to do this. And Jesus, in verse 46, looks at the host and says, I come to your house. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't even give me the customary welcome of, you know, that ancient Eastern kiss, that that greeting. And catch this. And you did not put oil on my head. Mm. This idea of anointing the guest's head with oil wasn't something that was done later. It was done as you came in. And there's a sense where David is saying, you know, you've prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you have already indicated how much you love me by 
even before signing the deal, even before we took the contract and covenant and you signed it, you shared with me through this expression of anointing of oil that you have favor. You love me. You want to care for me. You cared for me and thought of me even before I got into the door here. And that's kind of what he's getting at here. So when you read this, you anointed my head with oil. You, I, I, we don't have that kind of custom. We don't have that kind of uh, way of understanding it. But they did in that day. And, and Jesus even makes that claim. He says, look, at you didn't, you, you didn't bring me into your home because you cared about me. You brought me in your home because you, you were out to get me, so to speak. And so he says, this woman did this. And so David is saying, before we sign the covenant and the treaty, that you've approved, you've accepted, you've delighted me. And it's a simple act of pouring oil that you did on me when I arrived. And so in a sense, it means this. God has hosted you. He's brought you before his table. And he says, now, don't fear evil. The enemy, whether it's a chaotic world that we live in, the enemy, even of your own flesh, I've taken care of through the cross, and the enemy, Satan, any other demonic beings out there, you not, do not have to fear evil. I am hosting this table for you. And what I like about this word celebrate, there's another um, passage of scripture, Ecclesiastes 9, 7 through 8, and, and listen to what it says here. It's, this is the way that God wants you to live. Hmm. He wants you to quit being afraid. Now, we're going to have fear, but he wants you to turn it over like the manna and take and know that he'll be for you. But he, listen to what he says. Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now, for it is now, today, that God's favor is upon you. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Isn't that interesting? Always anoint your head with oil. Yeah, I mean, you talk about not living in fear. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we talk about in my classes often is that there is this beautiful picture of God where the first letter to John says that God is love. And what does perfect love do? It, it casts out fear. I don't know of any other way through the fear and the anxiety and the turmoil of our lives. Um, they don't, you know, and I, I think sometimes we think that in order to be free from fear, all of the circumstances of our lives have to change. Um, no, I think the invitation is that in the midst of all the circumstances, there is a being of perfect love who is for us in the presence of all of what's going on in life, regardless of those circumstances, if they change or not, God is present. And there's a perfect love that sort of casts out fear. I know I was just standing here in worship this morning singing and, you know, as, as I am getting older and my eyes aren't working as, as well as yours and, uh, you know, I'm starting to feel like I'm kind of an ent, you know, I'm getting older, um, as, as life goes along. There's, there, you know, I understand death happens from, from what I hear. Um, to most of us. And the older you get, I think the, the closer those shadows and the valleys are, aren't they? The horizons of life begin to narrow down a little bit. And you think, what happened? I was just 20 and now I'm 60 or 70. And what does that mean? And, and, and in those songs singing today, can I, even, can I even do what Jesus did? Where right at the end, he said, so as I breathe my last into your hands, I commit my spirit. What kind of king do we serve? a God who is for us, that even in the waters of death calls us through the other side. When it says that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith in Hebrews, that word author there literally is the word, um, from the Greek, it's archagos. And an archagos was a Greek military member that when they came to waters that they could not cross, they would tie the rope around the archagos and put him into the waters and he would swim across with that rope, thus creating a way for everybody else to get to the other side. 
And so when Jesus is the archagos of our faith, he swam through those waters of death and stands at the other side waiting for us in those moments. It is that place of trusting into the perfect love of a king um, who is for us, who will be there through all of this, even through the waters of death. And we got to be really careful. There's two things that I think is really important in the word of God, especially when we talk about going through difficult times or we go through these times where the presence of our enemies, you don't need to fear evil. There is a sense you do not need to fear evil. There's a way that we live, and sometimes there's a call to this triumphalism where you are always going to be delivered in the yeah. way that you want it to be delivered. Right. Or we live on the other side and we go, oh, it's just God's will, so we just accept. God has this funny way of calling us to to press in him with all kinds of faith, trusting that he's in control and that he can heal. And yet also knowing at times the greatest healing may not be the physical healing in a moment or whatever might be going on, but is the great healing of, of, of coming into his presence, which may happen, which does happen through death. Yeah. So how do we press into it and still have faith and continue to do so? Paul used to do that. He said, I, three times I've asked. I continue to ask. I press into this. And yet I also recognize that God is greater and I don't need to live in fear that he is with me, that he is with me. You may need to hear that today. He is with you. Yeah. He is with you. So I was going to just go on, and it just says here, um, Peter, after that, says, can, we all know this, right? You prepare a table before me. I, I should say David we all did that. This. I mean, I might have been in the text, but it was David. Oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah no. Yes, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, no, I'll yeah. get back to the right text. Um, <laughs> I know you lean into me for yeah. really inspired words, and so I appreciate that, Kevin. Yeah. Oh, my word. Anyway. Um, <laughs> So, as you think of it, and we've been talking about it, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have already kind of anointed my head with oil, showing that the idea that, you're to, that I'm to celebrate. But then he says, my cup overflows, right? And, and, and what I find is interesting about it is he doesn't say my cup's half full. doesn't say it's three quarters full. Doesn't he say, you know, how, you know, most people you take it and you just fill it right to the top so they have enough to be able to go over and get some cream or do whatever they need to do. It says he fills it to overflowing. It's like he's just sitting there and now it's just going all over the table. Uh, I had a, uh, a, a Jewish rabbi that I had once share something around this and, and, and this person, he said, often people encourage you to think of a pitcher of water being poured into a cup. He was talking about Psalm 23 where it rises and rises until it just gets to the edge and then maybe spills over a little bit, and that's what they're trying to do, the imagery. He says, that's not the idea here. And I'm a little confused. I'm thinking, well, what is the idea? I mean, I'm thinking of a picture. He goes, no, no. It's much more the picture of you holding a cup under constant, never-ending stream of water flowing from a spring that never stops. It just keeps pouring out. On and on and on it pours out. There is so much in the spring of abundance that it almost seems wasteful. There is, there is this sense that someone in your mind, you're kind of looking and go, you should turn that off because we should preserve this water. Anybody um, live out by Highway 55, just if you ever go just a little bit west of Rockford? There's a, a spring there called Dickinson's Spring. And I would drive by there from time to time and, and I would know, here's this pipe that comes out of the water, uh, out of the ground and there's this, it kind of comes over and, and you see water and people fill up water and they get spring water, fresh spring water. And it just gushes out of it. And I've stopped a few times and I'm going to think to myself, this is wasteful. Someone should just turn the spring off. It's going to run out. <laughs> but it doesn't. It doesn't. And that's David's response. God, your love, you continue to pour it out. You continue to pour it out. I don't always feel it. I don't always see it. I don't always walk in it. But it continues to pour out on me. It continues to pour out on me. It seems so extravagant. It seems so almost wasteful. But you're so full that you never, 
ever run out of the resources that are necessary for me. Now that's the picture David's giving. He, he, he's saying the great I am is so full and abundant to all us little wannabes, these little I ams. Hmm. He's the great I am. Hmm. Yeah, you know, that picture of the cup overflowing, Dallas Willard, a wonderful contemporary theologian who passed away recently, he talked about that if you were then the enemies sitting there watching this meal between the king and the, and the vassal, um, this cup overflowing, you'd realize there was way too much just for the person that was at the table. And there would be this invitation then to the enemies to also participate in the overflowing beauty and wonder of God, that there it wasn't just for them to take in their own life. There was always enough for everybody that would come if they wanted to, to sit at the table. So this is some of the reason why Jesus can say, love your enemies. Um, the God who casts out fear in you, bring that same, build the bricks of my sapphire kingdom into this world that even the enemies would come and be compelled by the spilling over beautiful love of God. Um, I think as we take communion, Kevin, it's um, one of those things I think growing up for me, communion was so often something that we sort of just did, you mm-hmm. know, on a once a month basis. And, um, and I think I did it out of an understanding that we had to do this because it was obedience. Um, and that's true on one level, except Jesus says, do this out of remembrance for me. And to remember, again, in the biblical text is not this idea that I'm going to try to hearken back in my memory to recall the events of the past, and then as I'm sitting here in 2018, somehow be grateful for all of what happened in the past, but that's all in the past. Um, to remember something within the Jewish faith is to ask God to bring once again into the present all the realities that have always been true about his kingdom. To bring them back so that we're experiencing them afresh and anew in this place. And, uh, and so this, there's sort of this mysterious interaction. Yes, it's bread and yes, it's cup. Um, but there's somehow Jesus present here as well with us as he is doing the same invitation. The cup is running over today, not just at that table with David. The invitation to make sapphire bricks of the kingdom is today, not just back then. The invitation to experience the love of God, um, that'll cast out, boy, if we could walk away with just a little less fear, mm-hmm. right, from being at the table, experiencing the love of God. All of the table is Jesus saying, I've made a covenant with you out of my blood, just like I always have. And I promise you, every time you get to that table, you will proclaim my death or you will live in the realities of my death that brought life until the day I come back again. It's a central call of the church to come back to the table again and remember whose we are and who we are as we walk out life in God's kingdom. And I I, I love this because we're going to move to this in just a moment, but you look at scripture and you look at, he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. And you, you get this picture again in the New Testament where Jesus, you know, the disciples didn't put that meal on. And you read scripture, Jesus said, go to this room. He had planned this meal. He brought them up to that room just like God brought them up the mountain, just like David is, in a sense, brought up to the top of Jerusalem with his God. And, and here, Jesus says, I'm going to share a meal with you. And, and one of the things he does is the very first thing he does, because, folks, our life is an overflowing of God's love because he served us so that we can go out here tomorrow, this afternoon, and serve others. Yeah. Because he loved us, He brought us to the table. He signed with the cross, the covenant. This this meal was pointing to this cross that said, you don't need to live in guilt. You don't need to live in fear. You need to celebrate life because I'm with you everywhere where you go. And then I want you to go everywhere, in a sense, offering that same meal to other people. 
bringing forgiveness, bringing peace, looking for opportunities, practical ways to serve others so that they can, in a sense, join into this meal and know Jesus and his saving love that transformed my heart and still transforming my selfish heart. And I believe um, as we take this meal, I ask you just to pray and to consider as we um, will be asking, if the service would come forward, let's go and let's take this meal together. Um, I ask you to be praying and thinking about this very truth. Celebrate. You are here because Jesus called you to be here. I'm going to ask the uh, servers if they'd come forward and let's just pray. Father, as we take this meal together, we again proclaim that you have called us to it. You've prepared it. And you don't just feed us in this moment. You have called us to find nourishment from you day in and day out. Thank you for um, your love. Thank you for your forgiveness. I just feel compelled right now. If you are dealing with sin and you're feeling a sense of being separate from God, he knows it. He just asks you to admit it. He just would say, confess it, agree with me. And repent, turn from it, and just say, I want to once again receive your grace and your goodness. He loves you. He takes the punishment, so don't punish yourself any longer. Celebrate the grace of God. We take this meal in your name. Amen.